Hey, Forge family. In podcast number three, we looked at the second half of chapter one in the book of Joel. In that text, the prophet delivers the word of the Lord to the priests, then to the people. He has seen a greater judgment coming on Judah, the day of the Lord, which will exceed the blows of the recurrent locust invasions and the drought that Judah is experiencing. Calling the priests to put on sackcloth and lament and to spend the night laying before the Lord, Joel is setting them up to first repent for themselves and then to intercede for the people. The daily burnt offerings on the altar had stopped. And the text indicates that the grain, the oil, and the new wine had been withheld. The people of Judah were in a panic and held back whatever little bit of foodstuffs for themselves in the teeth of a coming famine. That put the priests and the people out of compliance with God, breaking the law that required daily burnt offerings. Joel charged the priests to consecrate a national fast and a solemn assembly in the temple grounds, urging all the inhabitants of the land to come and cry out to the Lord. Then he introduces the prophecy of the day of the Lord in which the judgment will fall on Israel and Judah before God's wrath is poured out on the unbelieving Gentiles who hate him and his people Israel. Food has been cut off. Joy and gladness has been cut off from the house of God. Desperate attempts have been made to plant seed into a drought season when no rain comes to germinate the, the, the seed that was sown and it's laying there under the clods. All the granaries have been dismantled to get that last bit of grain in the cracks. And then thirdly, the barns have been stripped of any remaining hay and fodder for the herds. That left the cattle to wander about with no grazing. And they groaned in hunger, and the sheep herds were suffering. The wild animals panted, for their water sources had dried up. The searing heat of a drought had devoured the pastures in the Judean wilderness, and now Joel announces that worse was set to come. Let's pray. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, you, Lord, called out to your people Israel to obey and to worship you only and to walk in your ways. Those same texts show that your chosen people were led astray and chose not to honor Yahweh. And then you released judgment on them for their wrong choices. Thank you, Almighty One, that you are the God who keeps reaching out, keeps loving on your people, even as you do to us. Help us learn the lessons from Scripture and walk differently. Help us to repent quickly and turn back to you in Jesus' name. All right, let's open our Joel texts to chapter 2, and we will begin with verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. Joel commands that a shofar be sounded. These were ram's horn trumpets from which would come a blast of sound to call the faithful to worship or to alert the inhabitants of Jerusalem that an enemy was coming against them. 
Here, it was the latter. In this case, the shofar is sounded from Zion, not the watchtowers on the wall, but rather the Lord's holy mountain, high in Jerusalem, on which the temple of Solomon stands. It's here that the Lord has sworn to take residence. Joel's second mention of the day of the Lord points to a coming judgment on Judah and Israel and the prophet. And to the prophet, it really appeared that that judgment was near. Recall again the cycle described by the prophet Zechariah of judgment on Israel and Judah for their egregious sins, causing them to be purified before the Lord. Then the Lord turns loose his wrath against the surrounding Gentile nations that have oppressed Israel. That would have been Syria. That would have been Ammon and Moab and Edom and Philistia, Egypt, the surrounding nations around Israel. Joel looks to see the leading edge of that day of the Lord coming in judgment against Judah. Joel follows in verses 2 to 11 with descriptions of an invading army like that of locusts, which overwhelms the land and its defenses and enters the city of Jerusalem. Quote, A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it, to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, And like war horses, they run. With the noise of all chariots, they leap on top of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble. Like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the peoples are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the walls like soldiers. They march in line. Nor do they variate or deviate from their path. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his own path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They climb the walls. They climb into houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes. The heavens tremble and the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Unquote. Here, the Lord, by Joel's mouth, speaks of both the manner of invasion by locusts and that of a vast invading human army. The passage starts with the same descriptions of the darkness and clouds that surround Mount Sinai. When the Lord descends to meet with Moses, during which time the Lord cut tablets of stone from the rock, and as he spoke, his words were cut into the stone surfaces that became the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments. Then as dawn breaks, Joel sees a vast army like none before or after. As they advance, it is as if a fire burns before them. That ought to be a clue as to who leads that army. Fire proceeds before the Lord in multiple texts of Scripture, 
The fire comes on the land as the army advances, and the land is pictured as Eden, lush, green, watered, and fruitful. And then it's burnt up, leaving a seared, blackened wilderness behind it as the army advances. That is an exact picture of what the locust swarms had already done. And in the day of the Lord, it will be worse. The bit about the invaders having the appearance of horses harks back to how locusts were described in various cultures. Some writers in history have described their physical appearance as micro-horses and even crafted, crafted words to describe the locust. In Italian, locust is cavalletta, tiny horse. The sound of an oncoming swarm of locusts is said that uh, that uh, it would be like the sound of chariots advancing at speed and the sheer number of locusts consuming crops will sound like a slow burning wildfire as it consumes dry stubble. Then the text leaps to descriptions of a human army that is advancing on Jerusalem. When the people see the advancing army, they're struck in their emotions. In their hearts, they become pale a sign of fear and impending panic. Then Joel said that those warriors that were being watched began to run like mighty men, to climb walls, to breach the defenses of the city. These are not raw recruits. They're highly trained and seasoned fighters who advance in close order, not crowding or jostling in one another. And when the javelins uh, javelin start to fly and some of them are struck down, they close ranks and they keep moving forward. They overwhelm the defenders. Joel continues to say that the earth will quake, the heavens will shake, and the heavenly bodies that give and reflect light will be darkened. Suddenly, it is the voice of the Lord God that's heard leading this army. The Lord is the one who is going to oversee and engineer this horrendous judgment on Israel, coming unseen at the head of the army, but his voice will thunder. Joel describes a vast camp of the Lord's subcontracted invaders, for this is not the army of heaven, but a human army that he is, he is going to direct against Judah in judgment. Verse 11 finishes this section with, For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Unquote. Now, has not the Lord promised that he will judge Israel for their infidelity and sin? And when this judgment falls, Joel asks rhetorically, Who can endure it? The prospects of survival are in the Lord's hand. Isaiah particularly prophesied regarding a remnant that, was, that were faithful who would survive. Now, we can date the destruction of the renegade nation of, of Israel to 726 B.C. by the armies of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. <clears throat> At the same time he invaded Israel, he surrounded Jerusalem and invaded Judah, but failed to conquer Jerusalem. Twice more he sent his armies and twice they failed to conquer Jerusalem. But each time they left a scorched earth behind them in Judah. Joel is looking at the short 
term prophecy and its partial fulfillment of its release of the prophecy at the word of the Lord. See, in 586 BC, Judah is finally overwhelmed, the temple burned, and Jerusalem crushed by the Babylonians who took Judah into captivity in Babylon. This is another short-term fulfillment of the coming day of the Lord. As far as the judgment against Judah is concerned, the day of the Lord will begin after the bride of Christ, the church, the ecclesia, those of us redeemed by the blood of Christ are raptured with both the dead and the living in Christ. And then we who are alive will re- and remain, we will be caught up and, and joined with, the, with those rising from the dead to meet the Lord in the air. Now suddenly, the Lord through Joel offers a way back. A way to suspend judgment. Verses 12 to 14 are a note of hope in the midst of the prophesied future war against Judah. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord, your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will turn whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a libation for the Lord your God. It's evident here in the text that there are two speakers. Yahweh, the Lord, speaks directly to Judah through Joel. Quote, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your heart, not your garments. See, translators and interpreters of this passage have added quote marks in the English text, attributing that sentence to the Lord himself. Outward worship matters to the Lord, but it's down the list of priorities topped by a broken and contrite heart. The Lord takes the initiative. He casts hope before the people and the priests. Immediately, Joel jumps in with commands. It is almost as if he says, quote, Did you hear what the Lord just said? Unquote. Now, return to the Lord, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a libation for the Lord your God. We don't often use the word relent, but it means one's anger softens, and changes, and it's replaced by mercy and compassion. By what is true, what's true in that is that it, when we repent, when we change our minds, when we turn from sin and return to the Lord of compassion and mercy, we discover that those characteristics of compassion and mercy often trump his wrath. He is the one who relents on our behalf. That last two phrases that Joel looses to implore Judah to repent speak of the Lord God leaving a blessing behind him as he passes, not scorched earth, burned with fire. And that blessing might be, might be restoring of the land so that a grain offering and a libation become possible. What follows in verses 15 to 17, is a summons to a sacred assembly. 
Blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and do not make thine inheritance a reproach, a byword amongst the nations. Why should they among the people say, Where is their God? Unquote. Once more, Joel calls for the shofar blast from Zion, from the Temple Mount. Then he instructs the priests a second time to call a fast, gather the people to a solemn assembly in the temple courts, and he does mean all the people, including those who would normally be exempt, nursing mothers and nursing children, babies, and newlyweds. His instructions continue as to where the priests are to stand in the courtyard of the temple. They're to be between the vestibule or the porch on the east end of the temple that was 30 by 15 feet. And they would spread out from there to the great altar of burnt offerings that stood in front of the holy place. This was ground set aside by the Lord for the priests from the days of the tabernacle in the wilderness. It separated them from the people who would flood in to the solemn assembly. These ministers were to weep and intercede for the people and the land. In their intercession is a reflection of the words of Moses when the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And he said he was going to destroy them and build a nation up from from Moses. Moses' reply was very similar to the cry that the ministers of the Lord were to raise before them. Spare thy people, O Lord, and do not make thine inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say amongst the peoples, where is your God? In In an ancient Near East context, each nation had its gods, and they rose or fell based upon the people's perception of the strength of their gods and how their for, uh, fortunes were for, the, for those nations. For Judah to be raised, for Judah to become a byword of derision among the nations, such that the peoples would sneer, where's their God? It was unthinkable to Joel. <clears throat> Judah's shame was also Yahweh's shame, so to speak. Oh, he was having none of it. That was unthinkable to Yahweh. Now, Ford's family, this passage, this this prophecy from 1,800 years ago sets the stage for the mercy and the compassion of the Lord to sweep into Judah once more. However, this is the second time that Joel has summoned the elders. They are the ones who were to tell future generations of the locust swarms and the drought followed by the searing vision of the judgment on the day of the Lord. It is the nature of God to urge repentance so that he can relent. He can turn back to Israel. That too was to be faithfully reported by the elders and passing on to to following generations of whom we are part. From verse 17 forward in the text, the Lord will be seen in his compassion and mercy. To the listeners, 
That must have felt like a vast stone lifted off of them. Such, it feels like, if you will, is the conviction of the Lord. Around us are scores of millions of Americans who have been been in the process of being prepared in this season for repentance by the Lord. We but need to invite them near to demonstrate the love and the mercy of the Lord for them, to begin to respond. And any word of invitation will cause their ears to tingle. Yes, like the response of Paul's message to Mars Hill, on on Mars Hill when he, he preached in Athens, there will be those whose response is a swift, yes, yes, I want Jesus. Some will respond by thinking, Saying, thinking and saying, I, I need more time to think about this. And then there will be some who will reject that. They'll reject the Lord being set on their own downward trajectory. If the prophets are correct, we are poised on the leading edge of a one billion soul harvest globally. And if so, then the Bay Area's share of that harvest would be nearly a million souls. In 2000, my two oldest sons and I went to Argentina. That nation had been under the conviction of the Lord for some time. They'd been led by a coalition of a military junta and the Catholic Church during the dirty wars when men and women were disappeared for their political views. What followed was the Falklands War in which the government repeatedly lied to the people about their successes in battle against Great Britain. Until suddenly, the truth of their losses in battle shattered any confidence in the government and their hope for their future. When we walked the streets of Argentina or sat in restaurants, we could freely ask people, how are you doing? What what do you expect from your lives in the next five years, looking at, if you look ahead, and, and what immediate needs do you have for which we can pray? Those were divine appointments in which nine out of ten people encountered Jesus on the sidewalks. I'm not saying that the Lord will do it the same way here in the Bay Area. Let Him guide your steps, your phone calls, your conversations, and your emails. Prepare your hearts for a Pentecost-like experience and wait on the Lord. Let's pray. God of mercy, you long for this region to rise and come to faith in Jesus, in his shed blood and resurrection. Here we are, Lord, not knowing what comes next, but you keep equipping us to prepare our children and we ask you, Please continue to equip the adults as well. More, Lord, more of that. Like the successive mountaintops and ridges of prophecy, we do not know the timing of such a revival, such an awakening. Come soon, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Forge, you're loved. We'll see you soon. God bless you.